is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Stephen Smith. Stephen is an agrarian and adventure photographer who has successfully combined his love of ranches, farms, motorcycles, and travel into a full-time career in professional photography. Thanks to a combination of his artistic eye, a lot of hard work, persistence, and a willingness to take risks, Stephen has successfully created a niche for himself in the crowded arena of professional photography. He's obviously a naturally talented artist, but it seems to me that a great deal of Stephen's success can be traced back to the fact that he's completely committed to putting himself in unique and often difficult, uncomfortable, or scary situations that allow him to capture one-of-a-kind experiences and perspectives. Among other things, he's worked on a 90,000-acre cattle ranch in Colorado. He took a five-month solo motorcycle trip through South America, and he's put in time at several California and Colorado vineyards, all while constantly shooting photos and refining his craft. Stephen's solid understanding of agriculture and years of adventure travel are evident in his work. His images are as authentic as they are artistic, and he knows how to capture the true spirit of a person, place, animal, or experience in a fresh style that creates a genuine connection with the audience. I came across Stephen's agricultural photography several years ago and was immediately drawn in. And keep in mind, I can be a bit jaded when it comes to ranch photos. I look at them all day as part of my job. But there's something about Stephen's work that's unique and compelling, and I'm a huge fan of all of it. I was super excited to finally meet Stephen and learn more about his work and personal story. We had a fun and oftentimes hilarious conversation that covered a wide range of interesting topics. We dug into his connection to agriculture and talked in depth about how ranches and farms can play an important role in land conservation. We talked about motorcycles and learned about some of his adventures around the world and throughout the American West, including a few recommendations of best rides in the American West. We discussed the importance of international travel and lessons that we've both learned from immersion in foreign cultures. We obviously chatted in great detail about his photography, and he also told an absolutely ridiculous story about a bear chasing him and some of his buddies through a scree field in the front range of Colorado. It's ridiculous. You need to hear it. I had a really fun time recording this episode with Steven. He's a cool guy, and he's able to combine thoughtful, in-depth conversation with some really crazy and funny, hilarious adventure stories. So he's the really the perfect guest for this podcast. I think you'll get a lot out of it. If you haven't already, go to his Instagram page. Just type in I am Stephen Smith, and that's Stephen with a PH. I am Stephen Smith. And look him up. You'll really enjoy his work. If you're a fan of anything in the American West, ranching, adventure, mountains, rivers, he's your man. So check it out. I'll have links to Stephen's Instagram and his website and any other interesting info in the episode notes. So be sure to go to the webpage and check that out. But in the meantime, hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks a lot. Well, the the first question I've been asking folks with these interviews is if you and I were to meet for the first time and I ask you what you do for a living, how do you describe your work? Yeah, right now, you know, I'm a uh, an agrarian lifestyle and adventure travel photographer with a little bit 
I offer some creative strategy consulting uh, for clients that I engage in on a more complex level. But yeah, trying to make uh, live the dream as a, as a photographer right now. Yeah, well, it looks like you're doing a good job with it because I, I just <laughs> randomly came across your work a, probably a few years ago. As, as you know, we talked about that. And um, I, I saw, I, I came across some of your ranch work and it seemed, it seemed to coincide with exactly what I'm doing. And, um, and so I, I was following you and then it turned out we had a mutual friend. And so I mustered up the courage to reach out to you and you were nice enough to, to talk with me on this. So uh, again, I appreciate that. Um, but so how did you get into that? I mean, I guess we could, we need to break it down. You got the agriculture side, you've got the adventure travel, you got motorcycles on the agricultural side. How did you break into that or decide to focus on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I grew up in, in North Carolina, uh, also, and um, my mom's parents had this really cool farm that backed up to the Yadkin River. And I think that, you know, being, having rural North Carolina roots, you know, you, you're, there was always that, oh, this is from the garden, mm-hmm. you know, that, that would happen at the dinner table, which is an amazing privilege, but, um, it was just printed in my mind, you know, being in rural areas, uh, having space, being connected directly to nature, being barefoot, uh, eating out of the garden, uh, was just impactful on a, the deepest level, um, deeper than I realized until later in life, you know, after, I guess the turning point was a, a motorcycle trip in South America. I'd saved up a bunch of money mm-hmm. and went down there and rode. And I ended up in Mendoza, Argentina and got really fascinated with viticulture, uh, the growing of grapes, you yeah. know, and I, I'd managed a bar and, and knew about selling and serving, but I just was fascinated with the growing side. And that led me to Napa, where I, I lived lived with and uh, worked with uh, as an apprentice, very, very much an old world style educational and work experience. But this just this guy, David Mahaffey, he makes Olivia Brion wine. It's organic Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and, and Cab. And I guess my eyes were open to, you know, not feeling like I had to do or be one thing. I mean, the guy the guy, you know, shot photos for Polaroid in the seventies and hung out with Warhol and is a master woodworker and rides motorcycles and makes wine and just totally we jammed, you know, and, and he's inspired me in so many ways. And, you know, their backyard, him and his wife, it's just, instead of ornamental plants, mm-hmm. it, it is, you know, by default, uh, uh, a model of permaculture. So he's got fruiting plants and chickens and vegetables just everywhere. And, and I got tapped into that lifestyle, that agricultural lifestyle that California, you know, can offer uh, so many people. And and so my perspective, there was a big shift from the 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 connection to the natural world in a in the sense of recreation, mm-hmm. which is still very important in my life. But in addition to that, I started to think about the shifts in weather, the climate, uh, the landscape, uh, as far as is is how that connected to, to growing and producing. So that was a pivotal point for me going and, and learning how to make wine with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from there it led into a bunch of other stuff and, and I've continued to integrate that into to whatever I do. So were you taking photos the whole time? I mean, like when you left for your South American motorcycle trip, which I want to hear more about, but how, how long have you been taking photos seriously? Yeah, I think I got my first film camera when I was in middle school. Oh, wow. And I learned how to take photographs in high school in the photo class with my mom's camera that she had in college that was given to her by my grandfather, old Canon TX, and I still have the Canon TX. It is um, 
Yeah, it's I've been taking pictures for for most of my life, and I've always loved it. I love the idea of composition. I love the idea of of documenting and storytelling. And you know, when I went to college at the University of Colorado, I there was kind of this whole you know studying art isn't practical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I was lucky enough to have parents that you know they they wanted me to do what I was passionate about, and they, they helped kind of guide and support me through that, but. After six months in a in a liberal arts school without art classes, I just I, I just felt like something was missing. So I immediately declared art as a major and focused on sculpture because of my um, desire and fascination with materials and three D objects uh, and construction and, and then photography because of just that lifelong passion. And yeah, to answer your question, uh, I was photographing everything the whole time. So you know, I got out of school and I was I was a little burnout. And I said, you know, digital was coming on and film was kind of in question among some people um, in the professional realm. And I was like, "Ah, I'm not doing this. I don't want to be a photographer. Uh, You know, and then I I didn't realize that it was only going to get harder and more competitive later in life. But the whole time I was working with David uh, as a viticulture and winemaking intern, I was taking pictures. I started a blog. I photographed the whole trip through South America, which still is like some of my favorite work and, and moving and, and has been foundational, but with no expectations of ever making a living from it, you know, like how could I ever be an actual professional photographer? It just seems, seems so foreign, but through the course of working with David, other winemakers, uh, as a ranch hand on a big ranch, uh, and in distillation, I was providing marketing material for those companies, uh, and also building a, a pretty big portfolio. Yeah. Um, so yes, to answer your question. Are you? Are there any lessons you learned by starting with film? Like, say, say you you were starting right now, there wouldn't even be an option to start with film. Um, it, are, are there any lessons you learned by having to go through kind of the slow drudgery of of film work that you think have given you a, a big advantage overall? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think about when my dad taught me how to drive a vehicle, it was a manual first. Actually, it came after learning how to ride a dirt bike manually because of, of I think, his his desire for me to understand how each gear connects to, you know, interacts with the clutch and the gas and all those things. And I think that's a very relevant analogy for the way that, you know, the shutter speed, the aperture, and the, the film speed, the ISO, interact. And I think there's... I think for me, I only shoot manual on my mm-hmm. settings on my digital camera just because that's what I'm used to, and I love complete control. Yep. Um, and I think that gives me an advantage because I understand the technical side. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I can only imagine some some kid that's 16 right now and their first car is a Prius. Jesus, I mean, it's just an electric spaceship compared <laughs> to learning on the old Toyota pickup that I, I learned. So I think I think it has given me an advantage. Um, in, in my shooting, um, because it's just a tech- technical foundation that it's still even the digital cameras are modeled after those systems. You yep. know, yeah, you know, I, I don't do photography even close to anything on your level, but I do a lot of it on my through my work. And when I was in college, I took a photography class during summer school one year, and it was definitely my favorite class of college. But we I mean, we learned on the you know the old school film cameras. And those lessons I learned there, I still use them today, uh, you know, even with the fanciest digital camera and even with the iPhone sometime, it just gives yeah. you a base level of knowledge that most people don't have, I feel like. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned that you worked on a ranch. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Absolutely. So, you know, coming from winemaking, uh, viticulture, some sales, working for a distillery that was a, a peak spirits is out in Western Colorado, Jackrabbit Hill Farm, really progressive place that I also found on a motorcycle trip. So there's this, this connection that keeps going with my transition and my jobs. But I was interested in learning more about animal husbandry and large-scale land management. And yeah, I think that that experience, um, you know, in Colorado working on the ranch just kind of scratched the surface. But yeah, I just wanted to go. And, and I was also, from a cultural standpoint, really fascinated with, with learning more about the American cowboy. Mm-hmm. And I think that from a cultural standpoint, it's permeated everything from Hollywood to, you know, sh- button-down shirts at, at, at Urban Outfitters, right? So it, it's iconic throughout the world. And uh, living in Colorado, uh, a place where, you know, oftentimes there are, say, say for example, restaurants or business concepts tend to be inspired by other regions. You know, it's a relatively young country in, in the world and a young state for sure. So I was interested in, in exploring what I, what I consider cultural terroir. You know, I mean, what is the real root um, of this region and how can we, how can I understand this place beyond taking ideas from California or New York? So that was another part of it. You know, how can I dig into this? I didn't know how to ride a horse, Yeah, you know, and, and they didn't really teach me. I just kind of figured it out, but I was running, you know, we were, we were on 90,000 acres and, um, and where was it again? In between Pueblo and Colorado Springs. It's okay. a state land board land, uh, called Chico Basin Ranch. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know that place. That's a great place. Yeah. And, um, so anyway, I was there for about six months. I was doing some business development actually for them on the side. I threw a concert. Uh, with Steve Earle, that was a pretty interesting experience, and uh, set up uh, you know some, some website stuff for them. But then three days of the week, I was you know riding. We would get up at three or four and ride for two hours, collect five hundred head, and move them into another pasture uh, and ride back. And that was a twelve-hour day doing one move. So you know you learn how to ride a horse pretty quickly, or or you get out, yeah. uh, um, sink or swim, which I love. You know, uh, were there any people there that started when you did uh, that you saw quit? I bet so. Well, there there were not exactly the same time, but yeah. th- there was uh, one or two folks, you know, a, a bit younger and and uh, you know just exploring different things. But yeah, it didn't didn't quite last. And you know, absolutely, some of the hardest physical labor I've ever done, um, which is great because to me it was kind of like, cool, can I do this? It turns out I can, and it's very much things I'm going to integrate into the to to future projects that I have uh, percolating. But um, yeah, and and I, I learned about very very like I said very basically. It was a, it was a just a six month thing, and but how grazing techniques you know can really help to restore the land. And just last weekend, I was shooting down at White Oak Pastures in Georgia with the Savory Institute uh, video team or some folks that are producing a video. And, and it just, it just continues to snowball. You know, you put yourself around these people and there's just so much to learn about how we can help heal the soil and how to manage land while still providing food. Um, and, and obviously, you know, as well as anyone, it's an expansive subject that we could probably spend the whole time just talking about that. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on it a little bit, um, for people who don't, who don't know about the Savory Institute and, and don't really know about the holistic range management, um, can you just give kind of a quick overview of, of what that means to you and just to give people a base level of knowledge? 
Sure, and obviously, you know, I, I'm I'm not a technical professional here, but it, it's it's not rocket science. Uh, some of the the basic concepts, which is why I think they're so important. But you know, being from North Carolina or even the Southeast, as just as an example, you have some of these crops that have been grown for a long, long time, but you know, not until right around after World War II, to my understanding, when there's a a big surplus of nitrogen, right, that was going into some of these bombs. So then people started thinking of how they could quantify this surplus and they started making fertilizers and the whole concept of of the factory farm, the industrialization of producing food came into play. Well, you know, they're pumping the soil full of, of, of steroids basically and not looking at a, a holistic system. And nature is 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 holistic and it, it a monoculture is not natural. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing in my early stage research and exposure to some of these holistic practices is how can how can we use animals in a responsible way to help regenerate the soil, build build the structure, the nutrients, um, and and get it back on track while at the same time producing healthy, nutritious animal protein and, and food for, for humans to eat. Yep. So it's, it's, it's just a beautiful concept and I'm excited to continue to learn more about it. Yeah, it really is. It, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, I've, I started selling ranches in, in 2005, but it was a few years after that, that I really started learning about this and it, it changed my entire perspective on grasslands and the importance of grasslands and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, here in, especially in the West where there's just so little rainfall. And I think for people who want to learn more about that, there's a book by a guy named Jim Howell and it's called for the love of land. Mm. And it goes into all the details on that. And it's awesome. And I also had Jim Howell on this podcast. So if you go to the page, you can look that up and he's a, he's an extremely interesting guy too. Um, I love that podcast. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. In fact, I sent it to a bunch of my friends and, uh, yeah, I appreciate you doing that. It was very educational. Oh, yeah. Well, he's he's just a really cool guy. I mean, he's obviously, uh, on, from the grazing side of things, he he knows his stuff, and he's got this really neat profession, and he's a, you know one of the top guys in his field. But then on top of that, he after he finishes, you know, busting his ass on the pasture all day, he goes and runs ultra marathons. So he's a he's That's a cool so guy. amazing. Um, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot on this podcast and is just an interest of mine is land conservation, um, mainly land conservation in the West. And one of the things that always comes up when I'm talking about conservation, especially to people from, from back East, you say the word conservation, and it seems that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It can mean anything from, you know, saving the whales to saving the rainforest to saving a ranch. And so I like asking people like you who are kind of involved in different aspects of the West, what, what does conservation mean to you? Well, I think that um, to kind of start before answering that, that there's, no, there's no going back to what, it, to what it was, right? Our impact is, is growing. The population is growing. And I think really from now forward, we just have to think about what is the best way to preserve some of these natural systems that are still very functional? Um, how can we look at, you know, using uh, savory techniques as an example, ways to positively affect and, and regenerate the land? So conservation to me really is, is being aware of these natural systems, these places, and doing the best we can to minimize uh, negative human and, or, or animal impact. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, I think people on the extremes, uh, you know, some people who say no people at all, nothing, you know, right. the, the the most kind of militant type environmentalist. I think they serve a purpose because they balance out the the other end of the spectrum, which is you know corporate farming or, or big corporations that are destroying the environment. And so the answer, I, I agree with you, is somewhere there in the middle. And, and from everything I've seen, the way the, the Savory Group and just holistic range management in general, the way they do it seems to be, it seems to take into account both sides of the equation. And it seems to be a good compromise that, that works. Yeah, I think that in any, in any situation in life, you know, I, I think it's, it's important to have the extremes, but it's also important to have the perspective to to hear both sides and to you know find a place that's somewhat in the middle and, and be being realistic. You know, uh, I have, of course don't support dirt bike riders uh, riding off trail and, and creating erosion and, and things like that. But I also know that um, at this point it, there's there's some pastures or some parts of property that are are covered in invasive species and with manage proper management can, can actually be brought back to a more healthy balance. So I think that's what it is, is balance. Yeah, I agree. And one thing to, for people who aren't familiar with the Savory Institute, um, just to make clear that I think, I think a lot of people don't seem to understand is that these grasses, especially out here in the West, they evolved over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe millions of years to be eaten. Um, you know, that's part of their, system of of growing and thriving is a herd of animals comes eats them then moves on and then it regenerates and since there are no large-scale herds of animals roaming the west anymore that can be mimicked with responsible grazing of cows or goats or or even bison and you know listen to the jim howell podcast if you want (laughs) to dig into it because he digs deep but so you've obviously got a, a really really good understanding of a wide range of agriculture how has that helped you with your photography and, and allowed, allowed you to have kind of a different perspective? Because I would imagine that there are a lot of photographers who think that they know how to photograph agricultural operations or ranches or farms. But what do you think this huge amount of experience you have actually in the trenches of agriculture, how, how has that helped you? Yeah, I mean, I think um – you know, when I came out of school, I, I was a little intimidated and burnt out. And, and then what would that be? 11 years after graduating, I realized, wow, you know, I love photographing the things that I've actually done. And this could be a really unique perspective and sales angle mm-hmm. because if I'm on the back of the horse and we're, we're photographing a cattle move, A, I can ride. And B, I can drop the camera and cut to the left and get that calf back in line because I know it's going to the watering hole. Mm-hmm. You know, so understanding that, understanding the the shorthand of the talk. If I'm photographing a, a vineyard, you know, I know that verasion's happening a little early in Napa right now, so maybe I'll go up, and that's not common based on my background. You know, it's a warm year, early early bud break. Um, so I, I think it's it's amazing to. Think about if if you're an emerging photographer, right? What you know, it's it's so like I said, it's so crowded, it's so difficult. But you know, find your passion, live that, and and then maybe you know that's your angle on how you shoot. You know, it's easy for people to romanticize subjects, mm-hmm. and we all photograph things that we don't know a lot about, and that's that's natural. But 
you know, photographing something that you're, you're deeply passionate about and you have personal experience with on the other side of the camera or just, just working it, I think gives you an edge and gives you a very unique perspective into a deeper understanding of, of your subjects. Yeah. And from kind of an unbiased third party, I would say that your knowledge of the agricultural world probably builds trust, especially with the the people working on the properties. And they can tell that you're not some, you know, fancy guy who comes in there with all his fancy camera equipment. Like I'm sure that that they probably have a preconceived notion about professional photographers. And when you come in there and you can speak their language and you can work, you know, work your ass off all day and keep up with them, I'm sure they can let down their guard and that leads to better photos in the end, I would guess. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. It's it's funny because, yeah, I think when I'm in Los Angeles, you know, my friends kind of joke, you know, you're kind of a hick and, uh, (laughs) thank you very much. I, exactly. I say, you know what you, that, that's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said. And because, you know, those are my roots, you know, and there's no, there's no getting around that. That, That's, that's, that's the reality. You know, I didn't go to, I never, we never went to a city growing up. We always went to the woods, uh, if we had time off or vacation. And I, I'm, I couldn't be more grateful for, for being taught how to start a fire and set up a shelter and on and on and, and, you know, how to grow tomatoes. But when I'm on, when I'm in rural Georgia and someone says, Oh, he's, he's here from Los Angeles. I'm like, Oh, oh, you know, know, and it's like, Oh, city slicker. And, and, and then, you know, it's not about proving anything, but you know, then it's kind of, it comes out in the wash. They realize, okay, well, you know, he's put his time in, in this and he's passionate about it. So, so we're cool. And, but so there's that funny thing. It's all relative to where you are and how you're perceived. But I do think that there's a sense of um, acceptance and, and credibility based on on you know working ten ten years or so in farm and ranching. Yeah. Do you have any examples of kind of unique or extraordinary agricultural operations that you've worked with in the past? And it could be in the West. It could be in the East. Just places that you've had the the pleasure of of photographing that stick out in your mind as, as a good way of doing business? Absolutely. And they're, they're very fresh. Um, I'll start with where I was literally last weekend, which was at White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. And Will Harris is kind of the, the head herdsman, as he calls it. And he's, I want to say sixth or eighth generation. I, I don't want to mess that up. But his family's been in the area for a long, long time. And he has had the confidence and the, the vision uh, to to drop all of the conventional, you know, the herbicides, the pesticides, and their and their veggie stuff, the hormones. He's dropped all that stuff in the last thirty years, and he he's got solar. It's almost zero waste. I mean, their hides get tanned, and what they don't use for leather, they're using to make dog treats, and then all of the animal scraps go into this composting pile. Of course, it's just a full a full closed loop system. He's got maybe 12 or 13 different species all roaming the pastures together. And, and at the end of the day, it tastes really good, right? Their product is really good. And they're working alongside Epic Bar, which is, which is one of my clients. And, and they're just doing great things. And, and in an area that, you know, it's like, why rock the boat, right? If you're, if you're growing the trifecta, they call down there, if you're growing corn, uh, cotton or peanuts, and you're just pumping all those those uh, uh, chemical fertilizers and, and nitrogen and, and whatnot into the soil, and you're making a profit. Why change it, yeah. right? Well, the trick, and what I just applaud him by, is a couple things. But one, 
what seems to be financially viable is his model, right? So not only is he healing the land. I mean, I was in a cotton field and just like dusty, sandy soil, and he's got he's he just acquired it, and he's got goats in there, and they're they're trimming down the leaves, right? So this is a broad broadleaf plant that they're trimming down. The hooves are, are aerating in a way. Yep. They're dropping, you know, feces, urine. So they're putting nitrogen in the soil. Then they're dropping seed, grass seed on. So, you know, and then because he's, they're eating the leaves, they're drop, pulling the shade off, right? So that the sun can then get down to these new seeds. It's just a beautiful model. So this is a long-term regeneration, but, but they're working on it. Not only that, this town, I think, has a population of like 100 people. He's mm-hmm. got 130 employees. So not to say they're all his employees, but you know the, these little villages, these towns in, in rural southeast and other parts of the the country that were booming back in the day, right? Yep. Booming before industrial agriculture because they were that's what they did there, and they they've kind of decayed, you know. And it's really sad, especially if you're from the region and you go these beautiful old structures and homes, and you imagine what it was like, you know, in the early 1900s, and. Uh, and then all the business left because of the industrialization of it. Well, he is using this as a model uh, to, to bring in industry and yeah. support communities. And so that, so that was a very inspiring visit. And, um, and then a, another property that uh, I thought was just fantastic, and I worked with him at some point, but still, you know, I keep in touch and I've got a lot of respect for Jackrabbit Hill Farm out in Hotchkiss, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, I stumbled across them on a motorcycle trip. And just kind of let myself in, which at first, you know, the owner was just not happy about. Uh, <laughs> I guess I just didn't read the sign. Uh, but I, I, it was meant to be because, you know, within 30 minutes, he's like, how the hell do you know about keg wine? How do you know about biodynamics? And I said, why are you out here? You know, he was – there's six hours from Denver and they're making traditional European eau de vie, which is a dry uh, um, brandy, uh-huh. you know. Uh, natural fermentation, uh, organic fruit from this amazing microclimate, um, biodynamic farm, first one in the in Colorado, first organic distillery in the United States, and I just found this needle in a haystack. That's cool. And, and they got a James Beard nomination. They're winning the good. They they uh, won the Good Food Awards one year. I'm sure they've had other awards since. But it's just people that I think are are have conviction and and believe in. You know, creating these amazing uh, programs, these closed loop systems that are regenerating the land, that are uh, you know low input, off farm input, and 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 producing on top of that. Like it's great to have that concept, but it, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make really good wine. You have to make really good beef to make it viable. Um, and and th- those are two examples of farms uh, and ranches that are really inspiring that I think are successful in those things. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point that I forgot to mention earlier. You know, it's it's fun to talk about all the the feel good environmental parts yeah. of it, but at the end of the day, these people they make more money doing it this way, and they make these these properties more productive than they would be otherwise, and they make them more sustainable. And so, it's worth noting that this is a it's a financial financially viable model, and they create jobs, they 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 make more money. Um, it's it's not just a, a feel good, do it out of the goodness of your heart and, and sacrifice. It's do this. It's better for the land. It's better for your bank account, which I think is amazing. Yeah. It's got to be that way to, to for people to see 
and and hopefully it, hopefully it's an exponential thing and it catches on and it, it does prove to be viable in, in more places. Yeah, because somebody's got to go first. You know, it, like yeah. you were saying, a lot of these farmers and ranchers, they're working as hard as they possibly can to to you know make a, to stay in the black. And the idea of taking some big risk, it's just not, that's not viable for most people if you have families and a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And so luckily we've, there are a few of these folks out there who are willing to take the risk and show that it can be done that way, which will hopefully open the door for other people. Um, you keep talking about motorcycles, which I think is, <laughs> is really cool. So tell me, how did you, how old were you when you started riding motorcycles? Uh, well, let me say first, I'm, I'm having a really good day. Um, I just got the cover of the fall edition of the Overland Journal. So my photo is going to be on the cover. And if you haven't seen the Overland Journal, it's a beautiful periodical that's in print. That's a big uh, deal, man. Yeah, I'm having a good day. I'm not kidding. It's great to talk to you. I've had uh, got another winery client. And then this cover, it's like, anyway, I'm, I'm happy and I'm very grateful. So that that's a bit of a new, that's news and kind of a buzz for me today. But um, I'll put links to all this on the webpage for the podcast. Cool, cool. So I have a link to that that cover so people can see it. Amazing. Yeah. So, uh, my dad, you know, we, we, I grew up in rural North Carolina and, and, or well he did rather. And, and, uh, he was riding, I just remember hearing stories about this old bull taco, you know, the old Spanish dirt bike that he had back in high school riding around the woods behind my grandparents' house. So geez, I can't even remember from an early age. Well, I grew up riding bicycles with him and just remember hearing about this, seeing these old bikes and just that buzz of the adrenaline and the speed and the the sound of the bikes was, you know, just a lifelong thing. And I think I was in middle school and I got access to a buddy's KX80, which was a little two-stroke Kawasaki dirt bike. And uh, that's where I learned. And, and, and <laughs> that was the hook, man. Once you hit that power band on a two-stroke and you're just a little kid, oh man, the smile just stretches around your head and it's just on. So uh, you know, I, I eventually got a Suzuki dirt bike and, uh, dad and I would ride and, and we, it was a different way to bond. And I, I don't know, it's like, I saw him, I saw him as a friend, not just a dad. And it was kind of, it was kind of like in a, the first time that it clicked over in that way. And how old were you then? High school. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And so it was like, Oh, you're actually pretty cool. Cause you're not in dad mode, but he's, and he's a great dad, but it was like something unlocked where we were just bros riding. Sure. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then, you know, when I was 16, we both took the safety course for the street together. And so he got an old BMW and I don't know how my parents were cool enough to, to let me into it at that age and trust me. But I was, I, every now and again, I could sneak his bike off and I'd ride it to school in high school and everyone thought my parents were so bad, but it's, it's changed my life in so many positive ways. And I've been riding ever since then. I've had a couple of different BMWs. And at one point I, I could afford a Ducati when I was living here the first time. And that was just a, a good buzz. But yeah, I've, 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 I don't know. It's like you see the world in a different way. You can smell the honeysuckle when you come around the corner, you can feel the temperature drop when you come into a riverbed, you, you know, it's, it's full immersion into an environment and you're vulnerable. You know, the rain comes, you got to figure out if you're going to deal with it or, or go under a culvert or a bridge or it's, it's just my absolute favorite way to experience a landscape and, and a culture. Yeah. I, I agree with you. The, the thing you said about driving um, and being able to smell things and being yeah. able to tell the difference in temperatures, that is the, and I'm not at all an experienced rider. I mean, I, I mess around with a little bit and, but, but, 
I clearly remember one of the first times I was riding around on one and you, and I, I didn't start doing it till I was in my late twenties, but you, you cruising and you go down a little hill and it's so much colder at the bottom of the hill than it was up top. And it's just the yeah. neatest, you're completely in the moment. Um, it's, it's a feeling like none other. Um, when it, go ahead. Hey, go ahead. Well, it, t- it ties into agriculture because well, the first time I was on a vineyard that had a, had a kind of a, um, a convex kind of slope to it. So it kind of bulged out as it dropped down. Mm-hmm. And there were certain plants that, you know, there were certain rows that were at the bottom that in this particular region in Sonoma were collecting all the cold air, right? So they had issues with certain grapes, certain rows not ripening at the same rate as the ones above because of the way the air settled. Wow. So I just like, I know it seems so different, you know, such a, a, a um, unconnected, unrelated way of relating to the natural world from farming to like motorcycles or exploring. But it's just, it's, it's a pretty cool way of immersing and, and, and looking for those connections. Yeah. It's in the end, it's just connecting in different ways. You know, it, it's just different ways of, of kind of seeing things beyond just the surface level, I think. Um, so this trip you did to South America, can you give it, give me the rundown on that? It, I spent some time in Mendoza, um, oh, right cool. after college and I thought it was one of the coolest places I've ever been. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's the exact exactly the place where uh, I had that switch to winemaking and, and led me down this this ag path. But uh, okay, so you know I'm in Los Angeles. I'm managing a bar uh, during 2008 2009 when you know the bottom fell out and this that that recession, and I found myself in a pretty profitable position because people drink when they're upset and when they're happy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so so I, I was getting fed up with uh, Los Angeles and just had had this dream for so long to explore South America. You know, it just seemed like a more rustic, expansive version of the American West, and it very much is. And I saved money and, uh, you know, I told my boss and everyone I was quitting at the end of the year and they said, yeah, 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 cool. Yeah, okay. No problem. And then it came in time and I said, I got four weeks left. And they're like, yeah, okay, cool. And then I said, tomorrow's my last day. And they're like, wait, you're really doing it? I said, yeah, I've been planning this shit for six months. I told like you. it's on. Yeah, I've been saving for a year and a half. And so anyway, I, it was kind of a crazy story. I, you know, this was before Instagram or, or this amazing, uh, maybe overly connected culture we have now. But, you know, I, I, I got access to The Hub and Horizons Unlimited and ADV Rider and tracked down this Kiwi lady who had a DR650 that she had ridden from uh, Alaska to Ushuaia, which is the southernmost point. So a lot of respect for her for doing that. And it was in my budget to buy this old bike, take down some parts and rebuild it because it's a tank. Yeah. Well, she and I gave her a deposit and I, I got on the plane. She crashed 200K from the bottom, from the finish after riding for a year and she was in a coma Ooh. and it was really sad. She, she ruined the bike. So she came out and, and was recovering, thank goodness. But I had to act quickly and I found a bike, a Suzuki V-Strom 650, did some, <laughs> did some uh, shady paperwork but I kept, <laughs> I kept the dream alive, paid the guy, and I got on my way. And it was, uh, it was five months of riding alone with whatever I could fit on the bike. And I went from Buenos Aires over to Córdoba, through the mountains, out to Mendoza, down through Chile. And I got to Chile right after the earthquake in 2010. Oh, so yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah, it was really a wild time. And 
you know, I couldn't spend much time there. I was trying to volunteer, but they didn't have any infrastructure set up yet. It was just really like the week after. My cousin so I, actually lived there uh, oh, when wow. that happened. Is where's the place on the coast that has the really good? It has really really good surfing, like big wave kind of surfing. I can't. I want to say Valparaiso, that or is that a, it. is that another place? I mean, the, the the heart of it was Concepcion, which was I think the epicenter of the earthquake. Yeah, but there's there's a town that's northwest of Santiago that's supposed to be a beautiful beach town that has good surfing Mm -hmm. and I'm blanking on it but yeah so you know I got exposed to the winemaking I was just riding through down route of 40 and just seeing the most expansive ranches and and gaucho you know riding down the road and I wave at him on the bike it was just it opened my heart and my mind and and I had nothing but positive welcoming experiences with everyone in Argentina, Chile, Brazil, especially, and then a brief stint through Uruguay. But, uh, I crossed back from Santiago, uh, through Argentina, which is a big country, mm-hmm. uh, to Foz which is on the border of, uh, Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay, mm-hmm. or Uruguay. And then I made my way up to Rio. So, you know, this was crazy. I mean, I was living on the cheap, trying to just eat local food, you know, camp if I felt it was safe. Otherwise, I'd stay in a, a little hotel. And, and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't mean to stay in Rio for more than two days. And I stayed there two weeks. That's uh, so cool. And it was such a privilege and, and an amazing opportunity to say yes, to, to be open and trusting of people. And to, uh, you know, the motorcycle culture down there is really cool. So in Brazil, I would be at a gas station. I remember I was in one town, I want to say outside Curitiba, uh, which is a, kind of a highland town that's inland in Brazil. And I was just at the gas station and I look like a, you know, a guy from space with California plates and full kit. And this guy said, oh, I, I ride motorcycles and we have a club here and hey, we're going to a, a, a fish fry and, and you want to come? And Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't have anything else to do. It's Sunday. I ended up staying with him and his family for two days and dancing and, and going to the barbecue and, and riding with the guys. And it just, it was unbelievable. So that was a life changing experience. And, you know, I came back and <laughs> I went over budget. So I came back and worked on, on paying off debt and, and, uh, you know, learning how to make wine. So how would you say that you were different when you got back than when you left. I mean, I'm sure you could write a book about it, but I, I lived internationally for a year when I was 31 and I found it to be the most, one of the most formative experiences in my life, even at that age. So yeah. if you could summarize it, how were you different when you got back? I, I just remember being so uh, open and so warm and so just kind of happy with less. I mean, that's I the same. That's the same feeling I had. Yeah, really. Where? So where were you? When we you were in were- Costa Rica, um, and and my wife had a job there, and we went down there for a year, and we had just gotten married, and you know, you know how it is in North Carolina. When you get married, you get about a tractor trailer load worth of wedding gifts, <laughs> and when we lived in Costa Rica, we had you know three spoons, three knives, three bowls. You know, she, she was working at a, a bilingual school there. And, and then when we came back to the U S all our wedding gifts were waiting for us. Mm. And I was like, at one you point pro- I can't, we had 135 glasses. Wow. <laughs> it must've seemed like a tidal wave, right? Oh, it's yeah, just, it's, it's overwhelming. overwhelming. And you go to the grocery store and there's an entire aisle of nothing but bottled water. 
And Costa Rica is by no means a, a you know a rough place to be, but it's it is a, a developing nation, and so that, that's that was the same feeling I had. You don't need all this junk. I think we're in a really strange time, uh, and I'm trying to do some personal work uh, addressing this right now. But you know, in the U.S., we have too many options, and you know, not to get too personal, but whether it's 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 dating apps, right? You know, mm-hmm. that's more mainstream now. Which you know you got to cut that out, yep. or or too many IPAs at the bar. I mean, these are these are first world problems, and it's a privilege. And I'm not by any means want to sound ungrateful, but I'll tell you, you know, when you go into a bar and you say I want a cold beer, and they give you one, and you drink it, and it's awesome, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's fine. Yes, you know, because then you're focusing on your company, uh, on your book, and you're not sitting here thinking about which artisanal cocktail has the. Mo- <laughs> it's 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 too much. <laughs> Right, I completely agree. So, so that was it, man. I, I came back and I was just, I just wanted to dance and connect with people and and keep it simple. And I was so happy. And I think the goal with any of us that are lucky enough to be able to travel the world is when you come back, or even when I went backpacking over the Fourth of July with some friends on the way back down, I said, "Hey, okay, what can we list out? Three things that we felt, or we saw, or we remember." That we can integrate and and keep in in this life back in back in the in the world of connectivity and 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 obligation or duty you know whatever so it was it was definitely formative for me and life changing and uh, and I, I don't think I'll forget that feeling uh, yeah. of coming back. It's hard, I think, at least for me, it's hard to keep that in the front of your mind because you just kind of get overwhelmed with with how things are in the U.S., which is great. I'm not complaining about the U.S., but you. Um, kind of keeping things simple you're, you're swimming upstream to keep things simple the way the the culture is set up and it i think it's very evident with little kids because when i was there i did a lot of volunteer work with with in this little village and i remember after christmas there was a, a little family and they had like five kids and i think between the five of them they got a soccer ball and they were just unbelievably happy and it was the greatest thing in the world the whole town's out there playing with this new soccer ball and then you see kids in the U.S. at Christmas, and they've got um, you know about a ton of of gifts, all this plastic junk, just overwhelming, and they're kind of cross-eyed because they've got all these presents they can't even open them fast enough. And you know, I think that that simplicity, I think, is is a lot better for everybody. Not to get all preachy or anything. <laughs> no, I mean that's but that's exactly what I pulled out of it, and that's that's why I try to go to you know rural places like Mexico. And, and or wherever you know I can get and just just trim out because I, I think that we're we're on a path uh, you know with 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 too much information. I mean, we're just humans. We're just animals. I, I just don't fancy know that monkeys. We, That's what yeah, I, I just don't think we can handle all this stuff. And there's a reason why there's so much anxiety and depression. Um, you know, you're comparing yourself to a million and a half people on Instagram. Because you have access to all this, or or you try to maintain too many relationships because you spread yourself thin, it, it goes on and on. So anyway. we could we could continue talking about that all day, but <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, so this is kind of a random question, but have you ever have you read any good books about motorcycle adventures? I've never found a good one. Hmm. I'm not. If if you haven't, that's fine because I read a ton, and I've never found a really good motorcycle <laughs> adventure book. Yeah, you'd be a better a better uh, guy to find one than I have. You know, I uh, not really specifically about motorcycle adventures. I mean, it's almost like 
they tend to be like technical and kind of kind of you know nerd out on stuff, which is very helpful or 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 cheesy or something. I I don't know. I I haven't really found one. Yeah, the one I read it was the title or one of the one of them that I've tried out. It was called some like Two Wheels Through Terror or you know some. I read that. Yeah, yeah. I read it before I went to South America, and I, I yeah I. I indirectly know that guy and, and that experience is, is very interesting and it's, it's absolutely, I think, worth kind of hearing about and researching. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that's it's not his experience. win the Pulitzer Prize, right? <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, one more question about motorcycles. Yeah. If you had to recommend kind of the best two-week trip in the American West, if you just, <sighs> you had your, say you leave, you leave from Denver. Or no, no. Say you can fly out and you can land anywhere you want and do a big loop. What would you do? Oh man, I love riding in the West. Well, uh, I think if you could get the climate, the timing right, I love riding through the Southwest. Um, mm-hmm. There's something interesting about the variation from like the four thousand, five thousand foot elevation desert, you know, down in Utah to then going up and over, just for an example, like the LaSalle mountain range, right? That's east of Moab and west of, you know, Grand Junction Telluride. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're in the desert riding, you know, uh, dusty or tacky, depending on the weather, red sand and rock. You're riding on these crazy rock formations. And then you climb up to seven, eight, nine plus thousand feet and you're riding through high alpine, uh, aspens and conifers and, and whatnot. So I think that the, the diversity of the terrain, the, uh, the space, the, the freedom to explore the amount of, of public land, uh, man, I, I, I would say something like, I, I, you know, riding from Denver and doing a loop out through Utah, say a four corners loop, you know, you go around, around the four corners. I mean, that, that hits so many interesting things for me because obviously you get out to California and the West Coast, it gets pretty crowded. Yeah. So I would say doing Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, that, that would just be an exceptional – that is exceptional riding. And one other question about motorcycles. You said um, – we're recording this now because in like a day or two, you're leaving for a 10-day trip to Mexico. What are you doing down there? Oh, man. <laughs> this is another reason why I'm just I'm just buzzing right now. You know, I met a guy named Miguel who's a lawyer and uh, he owns Concept Racer, which is a, um, a shop down in Mexico City. They do really cool custom stuff and he's got awesome gloves and Kevlar pants. And we met on a, on a photo shoot I did down in Oaxaca for a Mezcal story. And I said, hey, man, I'd love to just come ride, you know, at the very least. Like, can I rent a bike? Do you have an extra one? Let's just do an adventure. And that was in February. And, you know, it's evolved into – a, a pretty legit production, at least for me and my work, where I've got you know one of the one of my favorite uh, photographers, automotive and adventure photographer and director, Sinway Xavier. He he's shoots for uh, Overland Journal. He's a creative director there, and and uh, he's done some awesome stuff for Toyota and Land Rover and BMW. He's just freed up, and he's coming uh, with a camera guy. So we're making a film um, oh, nice. about about a motorcycle trip from Mexico city on the new BMW scrambler, um, east down into the jungle to a place called Hilitla, which look it up. It's spelled with an X, uh-huh. right? It is a, how do I describe it? It's this psychedelic 
ruined castle in the jungle that was built over like 20 years in the 50s and 60s by a guy named Sir Edmund James, I believe. And uh-huh. he was at the time the largest collector of Dali. So, you know, this is like Dali and MC Escher got together and had a castle or wow. something. It is just mind expanding just from the photos. I've never been there. So we're riding down. Mexico City is on a plateau. So as you drop to the east down towards the Gulf, you, you actually drop into canyons and into jungle at a lower elevation. So we're going to go there. Uh, we've got uh, four bikes, uh, a chase car. Um, there's two ladies coming, four, maybe five guys. And we're doing a story about this beautiful region, this particular location. We're going to these waterfalls uh, called Tam- Tamul. We are then working with the tourism board of San Luis Potosi mm-hmm. and going up to the high desert to Real de Catorce, which is a, a really old, I think, thir- 14th or 15th century mining village. That uh, it's, it's where the Huichol tribes, kind of that, that area kind of starts there, that, that, where they're growing peyote, and they have amazing art and music. And uh, we're riding there. We're stopping at some amazing missions. And, uh, yeah, so just to think that the idea of having just a casual ride and us hustling and, and being very persistent has turned into a, a seven-person video and photo production for BMW Mexico and uh, the tourism office and some other really fantastic brands. It, it, I, I'm just beside myself and, and, and ready to get to work. So that starts Monday. So, so wish us luck. So, yeah, that, that'll be awesome. That'll be a, a huge professional challenge as well as a huge adventure at the same time, which, um, which sounds great. Where will that video be when it's, when it's all completed? I'm sure it'll be, be months from now, but is, is it for BMW? Well, you know, BMW uh, Mexico, so that specific, uh, you know, region or, or division of BMW Motorrad is, is our, our biggest, you know, our biggest sponsor there. So they're definitely going to have access to all of the photos and video and, uh, and basically it's content that we're building for, for them and Concept Racer. And that's Miguel's company. So he's going to have access to it. No doubt it'll be public. And then I think the Overland Journal is interested in working with us on it to get some stuff in print. Uh, Red Wing is involved. Um, yeah, so it's, it, it's going to be great. And I'll make sure to spread the word on it because it's, it's an exciting project. Yeah, that's awesome. And for, and for people listening, um, we'll have links to, to all Stephen's um, social media and Instagram. And I mean, there's his website. It's really, really spectacular work, especially if you're into any of the stuff we've been talking about so far. Um, so when you add up all these cool experiences you've had and all the hard work you've done and all these different adventures and look back, you know, you just got this picture on the cover of a magazine, um, a big time magazine in your world is, when you look back, is there a, a certain event that you see as kind of, was kind of a big break where everything started rolling for you, or has it been? I mean, and leading up to that big break, I'm, you know, the, there was definitely unbelievable amount of hard work, or has it just been a slow, steady climb of hard work, kind of ticking it off as you go along and building on your past successes? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that there was one particular event that was a, a click or a catalyst into into where I am and I, I still by no means have have quote unquote made it but I'm I'm I think I think this year in the spring I started to come out of 
I started to transition away from a zone or a space where I was like, am I crazy? Mm -hmm. Why do I think I can do this? This is nuts. <laughs> this is self-indulgent. This is stupid. Yeah. I need more security, right? That's what's running through your head to maybe this spring where it was like, I, I kind of somehow collectively popped over a hump where I said, I'm going to do this. I can do it. Keep going. Keep networking. Keep trying. Focus. Stay on the trail. Keep your eyes on the trail and go. Um, but I think the other thing is, you know, in my 20s, a lot of us, and once again, this is a very privileged problem. It's like, what am I going to be? What do I want to do? How do I define my identity? And how does that connect to my working life uh, for those of us that have to work? And, you know, I remember my grandmother one time introduced me as the, the grandson that still didn't know what he wanted to do when he grew, grew up, which <laughs> <laughs> I thought was kind of a jab. And, yeah. uh, and I said, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll figure it out, you know. But of course, that crosses your mind. You know, it's like if you if you are a little ADD or at least have multiple interests, you jump around a bit. But the reality is, is that I always kept a thread of of land mm -hmm. uh, and, and the natural world, uh, farm and ranch, and then motorcycle travel because it's something that that ran so deep in my life. And um, I, in other words, you know, having faith, having faith that the things you're interested in and passionate about and, and finding a balance between leading with your heart, like really believing in your passion and then making it tangible and viable and knowing that all of the pieces of your life will click together or, or sew them together yourself, make them connected and create a proprietary offering, whether you're a consultant, a writer or whatever, you know, don't disregard all your experiences, but rather make them into something that is connected. Um, and I'm starting to feel, especially on a day like today where, okay, I am crazy that let's get that out of the yeah. way, but I'm maybe not, uh, dysfunctional crazy or, you know what I mean? It, so having faith and trying to really connect all of the, the pieces of your life to make a, a really unique uh, offering um, and go with it. Yeah, I think you've definitely done it. I mean, it's and I think anybody who's really good at what they do, they, they never think I've made it. They're always looking looking towards the next step. I'm not saying you can't enjoy it, but there's there's always more to be done. And so I, I think that's a it's a it's a, a great I, th I think the fact that you don't think you've made it is, is a big, that, that says a lot about your work ethic and your ambition. So keep up the good work, man. Um, as far as, uh, your success, I'm sure you get approached by aspiring photographers a lot who want to kind of copy or emulate your career path. Do you have a set, um, line that you give them as far as advice? You kind of covered that in the last question, I guess. Um, no, you know, I, I think, I think there's a couple things at play here that I never thought about until I think there was one conversation where there was a, a mother, uh, well, there was a couple and they said, Oh, my son's 22 and he's studying at Brooks for photography and he doesn't know how to transition into the professional world. And what advice would you give him? And I'm thinking, Oh geez, you know, I've been photographing for most of my life, but I'm only six months into trying to do this professionally. Like, what could I actually say? Mm -hmm. And then it kind of came out just through casual conversation. Like I had mentioned earlier, you know, I, I don't think I could pull this off if I hadn't lived the ranch life, hadn't lived the winery life, hadn't, you know, sacrificed stability in a career and saved money and ridden through South America. I mean, I, I followed those things cause I was passionate and, and crazy, but uh, now photographing those things gives you an edge. Yes. So 
I think just really being true to yourself and finding what really moves you and what's important in the world, whether it's spreading the word of, of regenerative agriculture or maybe you're into fashion and clothing, whatever it is, but like live it, walk the walk, and then document it. Uh, I think that that's really helpful if, if someone's able to do that. Um, the other thing that I think, I, you know, maybe I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I would like to think that this is not an uncommon thought for art students. There, there was no uh, education around business development, sales, and 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 marketing. Mm-hmm. So, I worked for the director of business development for Jackrabbit Hill Farm, which you know they taught me so much about communication, keeping a sales pipeline. Uh, you know, how do I how do I maintain these business relationships? How do I pitch to people? And uh, those things are just paramount. I think they're really important for photographers and artists to know how to network, mm-hmm. cold call people, um, stay on it, do email blasts and, and, and market themselves uh, from a business side. So you know, you can be the most amazing musician in the world, but if you're in a cabin in the middle of the woods and no one hears it, like, you know, you're not going to make a living. So you got to get out there and do the business hustle alongside your creative endeavors. I think both of those are, are great pieces of advice. I heard a, a similar piece of advice from an author that I was reading something by the other day, and he was talking about how he gets approached by people all the time who say they want to write books. I want to write a book. I want to write, and that's probably similar to I want to be a professional photographer as I want to be an author. And he he says, well, what have you done? And <laughs> or what are you going to write about? Or what have you done? And they haven't done anything. And he said, you have to do cool stuff before you can have anything to write about. You know, and, and cool stuff to equal, you know, be an expert in your field, uh, if, if it's history or sociology or whatever, or if you want to write an adventure narrative, you got to go on an adventure. <laughs> and so that's, that's the right. Same. It sounds the same with your work. I mean, everything you've done, being able to capture these moments is because you've been out there putting yourself on the line doing these, these adventures. And um, I don't think you can fake that, you know, at least not in the long term. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you can't force it. I mean, I, I'm, probably overly persistent, you know, some would say annoying about trying to get work, but you know, you want to be assertive, but I knew when I got out of school and people said, well, why aren't you pursuing your art career? I I just, I don't know. I said, it'll happen or I'll come back to it. Or I don't remember what I used to say, but yeah, go, go live your life, you know, uh, build the experience. And also, you know, you're going to have to do some stuff for free, you know, don't quit your day job, right? That's an expression that, that, that's true. I mean, it, it's kind of like you work your day job, you do your stuff on the side. Well, at some point, you know, I was working construction in the winter in Colorado after I left the ranch, looking over business plans, trying to decide if I was going to start an agritourism retreat or if, what I was going to do. And then I finally said, okay, you know, I can't be available to go on a job if it comes, if, if, if I don't quit this job, you know, if I don't quit, uh, the, the construction job. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I took on a little loan and I kind of hit the road and said, yes, yes, I can shoot. Yes, yes, yes. And I did stuff for trade. I did stuff for free. And, uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm in the zone now where I'm coming out of that and I can start, you know, work on, on that, but it's, it's an investment. You know, even if you start a shop, a boutique downtown somewhere, you're going to have to take out a loan to pay the rent or get you, get your inventory in. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're not going to just become a famous photographer or writer overnight, you got to find a way to pay your dues. Yeah. So, and helps. I'm still, and I'm still paying them. I'm still trying, of course, like I said, but I guess that model has, has started to work. So 
I'm sure that's a great feeling, <laughs> a relief. Yeah, like I said, getting getting a little bit more into the okay, keep going zone as opposed to jump ship and turn back. So, um, well, I've got some kind of quick questions that I've been asking everybody I've been talking to, and I've gotten a really wide variety of answers on these things. So I wanted to to run a few of them by you, and I know you've got a lot going on with your trip coming up, so I want to be respectful of your time. But um, the first one is: Do you have any favorite? or favorite books or books that you recommend to people um, about the American West or really any subject for that matter? Mm. Uh, well, I'm reading East of Eden slowly, but You're surely. You're the second person to, uh, to, to recommend that book. Really? Yep. Man, I just, I just love reading about the West in that time period. You know? I haven't read it either, so I need to. Do oh, and and it's classic. Like I was traveling, and I was back in Colorado, and my buddy, who's an author, Dan Landis, he's great. I said, "Hey, I need a, I need like a, I need a quick book. I need a travel book." And he's and he comes down, and he hands me this six hundred page uh, doorstop. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm like, damn it, Dan. He's like, listen, you're gonna have to do it at some point. Lug it around, and uh, and so I I just love it because it it it, it paints this very visceral picture of the Salinas Valley during the time of being settled. And I spend a lot of time, you know, kind of just drifting off into space in my mind when I'm on these motorcycle trips, wondering what was this land like before it was in, invaded, you know, by the, the white man from the East or mm -hmm. what was it like when they were settling or, you know, going down these roads. And so that book's been really interesting recently. Um, you know, uh, kind of painting a picture in that particular part of the West. And I think that was maybe the late, uh, the early 1900s when that, that book was based. Um, I've heard great things about it. I need to, I need to just go ahead and read it. Yeah. Steinbeck, man. What a guy. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries? Huh? You know, I'm trying to think, I, I haven't really watched any recently. Um, Hmm. I've got one for you, and I just talked. Yeah, tell me the last uh, guy that I had on the podcast. We were talking about it. Um, Long way round. Have you seen that? Oh, of course. <laughs> uh, that's, I bet that's. I bet you've got that on repeat. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think you know, you and McGregor and Charlie Borman. They, I had that exact bike at one point, which was smashed last year, which is a crazy story. But um, yeah, that's cool, and that's exactly it, man. That's the kind of. Uh, documentary that that really fuels the fire for motorcycle travel that one's that one's really good that was that was unbelievable and then there was the second one long way down where they go through africa i didn't think that was as good um but yeah i agree both, i agree and i i just up until that point i always thought ewan mcgregor was just a hollywood kind of actor guy i didn't I mean, he, he's a he's a hard ass there's no way there's no way to fake yeah. five months through europe i mean they, people were pulling machine guns on him and stuff yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, he still has to, at that point I was like, ah, oh, you still got to learn to ride off road a little bit, but he, he's, a, he's a good rider. And, uh, you know, seeing Charlie Borman pop wheelies on an old 1150 GSA that weighs 600 pounds, uh, a lot of respect for that guy. No yeah, doubt. He's, no he's doubt. a, he's hardcore too. Um, so other than all the adventures we've been talking about, what else do you, do you have any other hobbies? We were talking about surfing a little bit before we started recording. Yeah, absolutely. Um, surfing is something, I mean, anytime I can get in the water, especially if it's warm and, and not crowded, surfing is a, uh, is something I, I, I picked up right after college on my trip down to Costa Rica, actually. Um, and, Where were uh, you? What part of Costa Rica? Well, let's see. We started in Malpais in yeah. Santa Teresa and we were like 23. I mean, the cool thing about that trip is I didn't have one thing 
that plugged into a wall. That's Can you right. imagine traveling now like that? I can't. Yeah, no, definitely not. I, I shot like 300 rolls of film. We were down there for two months and our only rule was uh, you can't leave town. We couldn't leave a town if there was good surf, right? So, <laughs> so my buddy Justin and I, he owns Sycamore Brewing in North Carolina, which – have you been down there to Charlotte to Sycamore? No, I, my sister lives in uh, in Concord, so I, I go. Yeah. I'm in that area. I'll go check it out. He's a brother, and he makes amazing beer. But anyway, we went down there fresh out of college, and and we just taught ourselves how to surf and got beat up. Oh yeah. But you know, at 22, that what else are you going to do? So yeah, I try to surf as much as I can, and and just the the fact that it's so minimalist, uh, especially in warm water, just shorts and a, and a board, and you're at the mercy of nature, much like agriculture. You know, you're really you're really riding these pulses of energy that come out of not to sound too hippie actually I don't really care but uh these pulses of energy that just come out of the out of the ground you know out of the ocean it's uh it's a beautiful thing so yeah. that that's People just, who don't surf, when they hear that, yeah. they think it sounds crazy. But I'm telling, I'm not a hippie. I'm from North Carolina. You're not a hippie. <laughs> you're from North Carolina. That stuff is true. It's 100 percent it true. It's you have to do it. It's a, it is a truly a spiritual experience. But it takes a damn long time to get good enough at it to to experience yeah. that. Um, this is I haven't been asking other people this, but I'm going to ask you just because I'm for selfish reasons. If there's one simple piece of advice that would make me a better landscape photographer, what, hmm. what should I do? <laughs> um, I think that um, with landscape photography, okay, uh, let me break this down. Thinking about your horizon line mm-hmm. is always important, right? I think people tend to, and thinking about depth of field. So there's a couple things here. So like layering, composition, and, um, and light. Mm-hmm. And this is just off the cuff. So hang with me here. But yeah, yeah. say, for example, you've got a cow in a meadow with a tree line behind it within a mountain in the background. Yep. So you've got a foreground, a midground, and a background. So when you're looking into space or through a lens, well, we'll say, say when you're looking out at this vista, this landscape without a camera, you know, you very much realize that this is 3D your interaction with the space is very different than how someone's going to perceive that capture in a two-dimensional form. Yep. So really, you got to think about how things are going to layer up flat. So, for example, when I shoot animals, livestock, anything really, I will say anything with eyes, I try to get at eye level or sometimes lower depending on the perspective. Mm-hmm. If you're going to photograph a chicken – and you're standing at whatever height you are and you shoot down and you don't have a horizon line in it, you've created a flat image that's very shallow that has a chicken in the dirt and that's all you see on a two-dimensional, uh, in a two-dimensional frame. Yep. Now, if you get on your belly, which the, the Will Harris at White Oak was amazed that I got on my belly in the mud with the pigs, but you gotta, you got to relate to your subject in a way that gives them respect and perspective. You know, that's how I think of it. So, you know, get low, put that chicken up above the horizon line of the grass. Mm, but then yeah. all of a sudden you realize that this creature is, is special and, 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 and big and it's in its own way. Um, so I kind of I digress from my original thing about composition and, and, and move more to, to where the camera is. But I also think that's important to think about where you have the camera, high, low, and so forth. But, you know, if you've got a cow going back to that in a meadow on the right side of the frame, 
and you might say it's a dark cow and you might put them inside this this kind of um, light colored pasture and then and you use this horizontal line of the tree line and then the mountains in the background. There's thing called thirds, right? So you might yep. put the, the tree line at the bottom third or the cow at the bottom third. Let's say the tree line at the bottom third and then the mountain range at the top third. You're creating a, a, an image that is digestible and approachable and aesthetically more pleasing mm-hmm. than if you had just maybe taken a photo of the cow with with no horizon line in it. Because I think people want to see expansiveness in landscapes. They want to feel an awe. They want to see this ah, calming openness that that being there really conveys. Yep. So you know, thinking about your composition, using thirds, trying to keep that horizon line in the frame so you get that really awesome distance. Those are some quick quick things. And then also lighting, right? If you're shooting in the middle of the day and the sun's banging down, you're getting harsh shadows. Mm-hmm. If you can have the restraint or the luck or or you know the choice to shoot early and late, right? The golden hours, you're gonna get such softer light, long shadows, and it's just gonna be a better image, typically, you know. Um, that's that's great advice, and I will I will put it into use probably next week when I'm out photographing one of these ranches. Um, and awesome. that thing about getting up early, every single time I've had the discipline to wake up before sunrise, it you know the, the photos are spectacular, or they're they're a lot better than 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 any of the other ones I take. So I yeah. think that's great. Um, all right, just a few more questions. Are you good on time? Yeah, yeah sure. Cool. Um, this is going to be a good one. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you in the outdoors? <sighs> How much time do we have? <laughs> uh, does outdoors mean outside of the city? Because, I mean, I think we talked about that motorcycle crash, but I could also tell you about getting chased by a bear. I mean, Yeah, let's hear the bear. So, oh, man. I hadn't thought about this in a while. So I was in college in at CU Boulder. And th- two of my buddies and I, we went up to go hiking before we went to a uh, concert, Government Mule actually, which I'm, I'm sure you know of. Oh, yeah. So we went up above NCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is up Table Mesa in South Boulder. Yep. And, uh, you know, it's casual hike. We saw a talus field and, uh, or scree field, whatever, and we decided to kind of hop up the rocks and, and kind of create a steeper, um, steeper hike. And we got into this really awesome – uh, boulder area and as we were coming down it seemed like all of the pine needles were really matted down you know really heavy impact outside of of, of this uh oh boy of this uh cave mm-hmm. and and then i looked down and i saw a jawbone that was clean and i said oh shit let's get out of here and i start kind of hopping and and running down this uh kind of ravine and my buddy Russ behind me just yells at me. And, and, and the way he yelled, I knew something was up. He said, stop, stop, don't move. There's a bear on the rock above you. And I looked up and, you know, no more than 25 feet away, kind of at an angle, but up was a black bear just staring at me. And I was way up front ahead of them. Yeah. So there you go, right? What do we do as humans? We fill with adrenaline and we go into what felt like ninja mode, just like full on, I'm out of here. And and I just said, okay, everyone grab a stick, break the edge. We got to have a spear. And I don't know where all that came from. <laughs> <laughs> it came from the depths of survival. Yeah, and, your caveman and we, ancestors. And, 
and looking back, it was so cool, you know, knowing that we made it right in high insight. Oh, yeah. I'm glad to be telling this story and in, in, in with this kind of, uh, kind of enthusiasm, but we crossed and we crossed through the woods, uh, maybe 40 feet. We got back out to that scree field and I said, okay, guys, go, go, go. And we're just, you know, skimming the top of them. Like the, like when the football players run through the, the, the tires, it was just kind of like trying to stay on top and not break a leg. We get halfway out and, and we start to kind of re- – the, the adrenaline starts to, to kind of fade and our breath comes back. And then as soon as that happened, we just heard snap, snap, snap and just branches and sticks. And we look back and the bear was full on chasing us. Holy and I, I have never, never felt that feeling again, thank goodness. But – I said, it's go time. I remember saying that like some sort of cheesy movie and we just take off. And I quickly realized that, you know, Russ, the guy behind me had some back issues and he was a bit slower and the guy behind him was a little bit heavier and had a backpack. So (laughs) needless to say, I I felt a little bit like, oh, I'll be fine, you know, and uh, which is pretty dark, (laughs) but it's just the reality. survival, man. Yeah. And I was, I'm, I'm fast. I was gone. And I look back and I'm like, ah, shit. Well, I'm going to hang, right? Like I'm going to run, but I'm going to keep with these guys. And, you know, Kyle, the guy in the back just threw his backpack. He threw his water bottle. He's yelling. He's just shedding weight. And uh, I just, I said, okay. I I said, if I hear that, that change in his tone, I'm going back. You know, like what else can you do? You're not going to leave your friend. You just try. Who knows? So we take off, we get to a meadow. The bear is right on his tail, but I start to realize maybe later or whatever that it's just pushing us. And, you know, I think obviously it could have made one swipe and and grabbed him, but the bear was just pushing us out, right? We were absolutely in between the cave and the bear because we didn't see any cubs with the bear. So the cubs could have been in if there were any in the cave. So we get out to a meadow and we're just, I'm like, okay, cool. I can haul. Well, and the meadow is filled with boulders. So I hit the ground. I trip on one. I roll back up. And now I'm like right next to these guys. And I was like, oh, damn, you guys are real close to the bear. And we get to the trail and then, and then we, we're, we're still running. And the trail zigzags, you know, because Boulder has such nice trails. They've planned a nice zigzag down the ravine and up the other side. I just jump. We just jump and we're tumbling and we're rolling down the hill. <laughs> and we come up the other side and I'm like, Russ, I can't run, man. I'm done. He's like, I can't either. So we get up on on top of the other side and we just get together like shoulder to shoulder and we have these sticks like on in our hip <laughs> like creating this spike dude i'm telling you this is real and the bear comes up and it just decided to walk up the other side thank goodness and it comes up and it gets and it does that kind of sniffing thing moving its nose around and i hear people coming from behind us and i said grab your dog there's a bear but there were like six people and a dog which could have you know it really helped our situation sure so the bear just sniffs and looks at us and is like, all right, cool. That was fun. Turns around, walks away. Uh, Kyle starts throwing up, just like, you know, <laughs> just just losing it. Do you still and give him a hard time about that to this day? I haven't talked to him recently, but... Uh, <laughs> Kyle, if you're listening, yeah. that's very embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, well, sorry. Hopefully he isn't because he'll, he'll send me a message like, hey, dude, why'd you chuck me out of the... But that feeling after the adrenaline goes away and your muscles are just zapped is like you're just tingling and floating in air. And we all, we all just got on the phone. We're like, Mom, I love you. 
dad, thank you. <laughs> and it was just so, vi- so real, so visceral. And we were supposed to go to that show that night and we just sat next to each other. Like literally, I think our shoulders were touching, you know, and we didn't need to be that close. Yeah, We yeah. were like sitting next to each other on, on the couch, just like drinking lots of beer and watching movies. And I, m- I remember Russ's girlfriend was like, what's wrong with you guys? Like, you know, aren't you going to go to the show? We're like, no, we're cool. (laughs) And so every hiking trip with them after, you know, I think Kyle carried a pistol, a 45 and, uh, and Russ always had bear spray. So that stuck with us. I'll, I'll say that much. Damn, well, that scares me because I, I mean, that, that trail was literally three blocks from my house or, or I can access that trail three blocks from my house. I run through there all the time and I see bears up there a good amount, but I've always thought, ah, they're used to people. No big deal. And I just kind of, you know, don't really pay attention, but, um, well, it, they thanks a lot. Now I'll be scared. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's called bear canyon for a reason. I, I think, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. My, my wife actually saw a bear, um, down there about, about a month ago and uh turned around yeah man that's intense that's a good one that's that might be the best one yet well thanks um, i haven't thought about that or told that in a while but uh you're good at telling it <laughs> well it was all coming back to me you know i mean <laughs> um yeah if you had to pick one place in the west that is your favorite or, or has a special meaning for some reason is there a is there one place that you just absolutely love wow I don't know the answer to it. I'm very, uh, I can't answer that, but I ask everybody. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Colorado's great. It's getting real crowded, but I think that moving there at 18 and going to college there, uh, it changed my life. I mean, it, it taught me about how to, how to survive and how to be responsible in the mountains mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere, you know, kind of expanding on all the great stuff my, my family taught me in North Carolina. And I, I love all of the west but i think that just just being really deep and in, in, in western and colorado is is uh it's magical and it's very nostalgic for me it, it marks a turning point in, in my life that's a good one um and then the final question of these quick questions what do you think in, in your mind what is the biggest challenge and or opportunity facing the west in the near future mm. uh water <laughs> i agree i mean um, I think 80% of the people I've talked to have said that. I, once again, I'm not a speciali- specialist in this, but I, I have chosen to, to, to situate myself temporarily in Los Angeles for what I consider uh, a cultural cultural uh, diversity, much like in the natural world you need biodiversity, mm-hmm. right? So I, I'm here for, for – I'm around people. I, a guy up the street was, was cleaning his, his sidewalk with water the other day. And I got into it with him. I was like, what the hell is wrong with you? But, you know, I I realized that there's a different way to do it. And I should have backed off and had a conversation as a neighbor. But, of course, you know, I'm trying to learn about how to use my words and and whatnot. But the point is that, you know, people turn a faucet and a spigot and it comes out. And that's Mm -hmm. as far down the line, so to speak, that they think. So, you know, I think there's a ton of people in Colorado. California is super crowded and in a crazy drought and at least Southern California taking its water from, from, you know, the Rockies. Um, I just, it makes me really nervous, you know, and, and I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think it's like the only hope is to, to go t- ch- chat with the kids. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, talk to them about what it means and, and give people a larger scale perspective 
right? Like let's let's get let's get in a in a spaceship and step back and look at where this is coming from and what it means and how we can try to make some changes. But uh, you know, I fantasize about having my own property and 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 I always think, you know, I always talk to to, to professionals and specialists and you know, where, where's the sweet spot? You know, where, where is there a lot of snow, snowpack? And, and it's, it's, you know, it's, everyone says the Southeast, which is kind of funny because I left there. But, um, I I think that really makes me nervous is, is, you know, what we're going to do to, to continue to raise food, uh, with, with some crazy inconsistent weather, you know? Yeah. I, I think the water issue is going to be the, the big one. Um, I think you made a good point there saying that people turn on the faucets and water comes out and that's all they think of. And I think that you could say the same thing about agriculture. They go to the grocery store and they buy their hamburger meat. Um, and they think that's where that comes from as well. So I think being able to look down the line, like you said, in in any, in any part of the environment, I think is very valuable. Um, so if you could make a request of the people listening to this and they're everybody from, ranchers to conservationists to artists like you to writers um and then people who do kind of all that what would your request be oh boy and really just people who love the american west i'd say yeah um work together i don't know i mean whether that's having a conversation whether that's me addressing my neighbor who's not from the united states about why I think he should not use water to clean his driveway, right? Mm-hmm. Communicate, work together. I think that I have friends that are in agriculture that that feel geographically but also culturally um, isolated. And I think that why I'm interested in spending some time in, in, in an urban area is, is connecting, right? Mm-hmm. How can we work together? How can we educate and communicate, whether that's through my Instagram feed of 69,000 followers, which are all over the place, I guess, um, and, and connect the, the struggles and the reality and the sacrifices of the people that are, that are raising animals and growing, and growing food to the people that go to Whole Foods and just pick up the organic produce while they're on their phone and go to their dinner party. In other words, it's not better, worse than we shouldn't have enemies, we shouldn't judge or try not to, but rather really try to connect all these dots and and uh, and try to explore the impact of, of use and 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 tell the stories of of where the stuff comes from. You know, I mean, yep, that's what you're doing, man. Uh, uh, you're playing a big role in that is telling the story, and I think you're doing a, a excellent job with it. Um, and I think it's so cool how I just happened upon your work a few years ago and now here we are talking about all this stuff so thank you so much for your your time on this how can people connect with you online uh yeah i my website and my instagram and email are all i am stephen smith mm-hmm. um at gmail or dot com or on instagram uh so yeah reach out i i would love to connect with people learn more about what everyone's doing and uh, and and use whatever you know little resources I have to spread the word and 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 try to you know do what's best for the West and and you know Ed thank you man I'm so inspired by all the hard work that you're doing to bring people together and and uh, and spread the word and 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 raise these issues and uh, yeah so you're doing a great job and thank you I'm so flattered that you you took the time to 
chat with me. Yeah, well, same here, man. I mean, the exact, I say the exact, you're the one doing all the hard work. I just sit here and ask questions. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, well, well, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Likewise. So there you go, Stephen Smith. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did. He's a really cool guy who's doing very impressive work that is very important for the future of the American West. It creates that connection between people who may not otherwise be exposed to the West, and I think that connection is what leads to conservation, which is what leads to all of us being able to have a nice life out here. So hope you enjoyed that. Again, go to Stephen's website. Check him out on Instagram. I'll have links to all that stuff in the episode notes. Feel free to check it out. Um, Thank you to Stephen for taking the time to do that as you were packing up for your big Mexico motorcycle adventure. Thanks to all you for listening. Again, if you have any ideas for future guests, don't hesitate to reach out. All my contact info is on the Mountain and Prairie webpage. So thanks a lot. I'll talk to you soon.